ignorance is not an option. If you live in the United States or even a Western nation in 2021, and you want to have any kind of relevance, we need to get our arms and mind and heart around this conversation. Trying to pretend like it doesn't exist or saying, well, I don't need to engage this. That's just not an option for us anymore. We have to engage it. Hi, this is KLRC General Manager, Sean Sawatsky. We're so glad you've chosen to listen to this episode of the Brave Place podcast. We are about to address a sensitive topic, but before we do, we wanted to give you a chance to hit pause or save this episode so you can listen at a time when you're able to give it your full attention or perhaps a time when the kids aren't listening with you. After listening, you might feel better prepared to share this podcast with friends or loved ones who might also find it helpful. At KLRC, our mission is to share hope in Jesus through media with as many people as possible. And that hope is available to all because Christ's sacrifice on the cross was for each of us. In order to share hope, we have to share love. And no one will feel loved when they don't first feel understood. The topic we're discussing today relates to transgender identity. Our objective with this podcast is to promote understanding education, and empathy. To that end, we're going to spend some time understanding some terms and language that is part of the LGBTQ community. At the end of this podcast, we'll share a number of resources that will further assist in our journey of understanding, loving, and sharing hope with as many people as possible. Thank you for listening. Welcome to The Brave Place, where we journey into the lives of brave men and women who have beat the odds or who are in the trenches right now. Difference makers who have truly discovered the warrior that lives within and are living it out. This is the place that will inspire, encourage, enlighten, and challenge that brave person that lives deep down within all of us. Welcome back to The Brave Place. I'm your host, Christy Rodriguez, and I am so glad you could join us today. We are definitely talking about an interesting topic that is all over the news today, and I wanted to bring an expert into the discussion. Uh, We're going to be talking about transgender identity, uh, what exactly that encompasses. We'll be educated on terms such as binary, non-binary, gender, gender queer, um, gender identity, and how these identities relate to being male and female stereotypes. We'll even be looking looking at moral questions, discussing the medical interventions that are taking place in sex reassignment surgeries, and then also why more and more teens today are questioning their gender. We'll have some resources for parents as well. So I hope you can stick around with us today. It's going to be a really great discussion that's certainly relevant to what's going on in our world. So I'm excited. I want to introduce you to my guest today. Um, His name is Dr. Preston Sprinkle, and I've just really been looking forward to this interview. Uh, Your latest book, Embodied, which covers transgender identities, the church, and what the Bible has to say. I really enjoyed reading it. I feel like it's this incredible balance between grace and truth, understanding. You do such a phenomenal job of of getting both sides of the coin here, of of where the LGBTQ and transgender community, where they are all coming from, and and where the church, uh, what the Bible has to say, and where you as a believer come from. So just welcome to The Brave Place. 
Thanks for having me on. I'm honored, truly honored to be here. Thanks for yeah inviting me on. Yeah, well, it's it's a real pleasure for me to have you because I I read your last book, um, People to Be Loved, and, and I, I do want to give our listeners a background on you. So, uh, just for you listening, uh, a little extra background on Dr. Preston Sprinkle. He is considered an expert in the fields of gender identity and transgender identities, um, LGBTQ issues, and biblical theology of sexuality. He also uh, he's a biblical scholar, international speaker, a New York Times bestselling author, uh, numerous books, over a dozen, um, including one of my favorites, which is People to be Loved, Why Homosexuality is Not Just an Issue, and uh, Living in a Gray World, A Christian Teen's Guide to Homosexuality. And he has given talks to thousands of people worldwide on the topic of faith, sexuality, and gender. And if that's not enough, (laughs) he is also president (laughs) of the Center for Faith, Sexuality, and gender, and you can find him online at PrestonSprinkle.com. I, I'm just really looking forward to this discussion because I feel like there's so many Christians out there who just don't even know where to begin with this topic, and they avoid it. Pastors avoid it. Um, it's just really kind of left hanging out. There's the elephant in the room, and it leaves everyone kind of uncomfortable, and nothing. there's no bridging the gap there. And and I think you do that so beautifully well. And so that's really why I wanted to talk to you today. Your book, Embodied, mainly it focuses on transgender identity. And so can you just kind of give me a little background on what even inspired that and what your goal and your purpose is for writing this book? Yeah, Man, well, that's a big question and um, researching and thinking through what the Bible says about uh, homosexuality or same-sex relationships, I realized that there's a big difference between the LGB and the T. What does it mean to experience some level of incongruence between your eternal sense of who you are and your biological sex What role of biological sex in determining human identity. Can someone be, you know, quote unquote, born in the wrong body as some people, as the popular phrase goes. And, and we can almost say T plus because there's other identity labels uh, that bring a whole new set of questions. But yeah, so I spent the last five years you know, doing a ton of research in, in many different fields of study from psychology to brain research to obviously a lot of study on what the Bible says about this and looking at people who are giving a whole spectrum of different opinions and, and thoughts on it. I think I say in the preface to the book, it was the most challenging book I've written to, to be able to understand the complexity of the various ethical, scientific, theological concepts, but then also to humanize people and to listen to people and, and try to try your best to walk in people's shoes who sometimes have had a really tough experiences in the church, even um, to try to combine that, that kind of intellectual thoughtfulness that this topic necessitates, but also the sort of pastoral compassion that it necessitates us to and try to combine those both in the one book. Yeah, that's what made it the most challenging book. If you, if you consider yourself a Christian leader on some level, whether you're a pastor, parent, youth leader, campus leader, if, if that is due, silence is not an option. Like there are um, good ways of going about this conversation and there's a lot of bad ways of going about it, but not going about it might be the worst way of all. To live in 2021 uh, <laughs> when sexuality and gender questions are all around us and people are just desperately in need of guidance to say, I'm going to, I want to, the fact is, and it is a fact, uh, questions about faith, sexuality, and gender have become the most pressing 
volatile, misunderstood questions facing the church today. Years ago, you know, it was like, well, few people really need guidance on why well, I would say they actually did. They just kept it in, you know, secret. But um, in this day and age, I mean, these are questions that are just everywhere and people desperately need guidance. So why did I write the books? I, I wanted to help people to understand what has become a really complex conversation um, with two goals in mind. One, that they would, that they would, um, be able to wrap their minds around some of the complex conceptual issues that, that this conversation involves, but also that their hearts would grow to love people, um, but more, especially people that have been misunderstood and generalized by the church. Um, and so I want people to, to think more deeper about this topic and to love more widely the people that are this topic. I just, I appreciate that so much. I, I think just from my, my own background um, of living as LGBTQ, like in that world, you know, I, I think I just have such a deep appreciation for what you're doing. Um, just from my own experience, um, I did seek out counsel from the church and they really didn't have anything to offer me. Hmm. You know, it's not that they didn't want to, they just didn't have the tools. And I think a large, a large part of what you're doing truly is equipping the church um, to do that. And so speaking of that, uh, bridging the gap, I, I do want to talk about these terms um, that you mentioned that I think a lot of people don't even know what these mean and they're unaware of gender queer, mm-hmm. gender fluid or pangender, um, that, which falls under this non-binary identity. And so can you just touch mm-hmm. on those? Um, we're looking at binary and non-binary. And right now I'm talking about non-binary. What does that mean? And then these other terms that I mentioned. Yeah. So, I mean, these terms, um, they can be confusing and misunderstood even by the people that use them. Let me back up actually, and and just briefly talk about the difference between sex and gender. Until you understand the difference between sex and gender, you can't get anywhere in this conversation. So sex back, you know, before 1970, say, um, sex and gender were used as synonyms. You know, if you're male or female, that's your sex, that's your gender. People would use sex and gender interchangeably. Um, and, and still today, a lot of people still do that, but within academic circles, and it's actually now become way more popular in, in pop culture, um, people distinguish between sex and gender. Sex has to do with your biological sex, whether you're male or female. Um, and that one shouldn't be disputed. I still see people dispute biological sex today, but that's a one of those basic aspects of what it means to be human is we are a sexually dimorphic species. A small percentage of humans might have uh, atypical features in their in their male or female sexual anatomy, popularly known as intersex. Um, but male and female are still the only two sex categories that exist. Humans, that's not scientifically disputed. So sex is a binary. There's one or the other, male, female. Now, gender is often used to describe a different aspect of our human experience. Um, most people would define gender as a psychological, social, and cultural aspects of being male or female. And within the trans conversation, um, there's kind of two subcategories of gender that are really important. Uh, gender identity, which is defined basically by everybody in the field as one's internal sense of being male, female, both or neither. It's, it's how you, I, I hate even use the term feeling that, that, that can, that can seem too weak. Um, because I sometimes feel like ice cream or I feel tired or I feel like watching a good movie that that's a pretty f- flippant, superficial 
feeling, right? Um, somebody, somebody that has an internal sense that they're not male or not female, even if they biologically are, that that can be super sphere and and disruptive to their life, to say the least. So, so yeah, gender identity, one's internal sense of being male, male both or neither, and then have these things called gender roles. You know, cultural expectations for maleness or femaleness. Um, you can almost shorthand gender role as femininity and masculinity. You can have you know, females who based on maybe their hairstyle, their dress, their career choice, um, that might be considered more stereotypically masculine, but they're still hundred percent female. That would be gender role, like the expectations for what it means to be a man or woman. The biggest question then is if somebody experiences some kind of incongruence between their biological sex and their gender identity, their internal sense of who they are, then which one are they and why? That's a, it's a basic conversation question that I rarely see asked, but my whole book is basically trying to unpack that. So to finally get to your question, Christia, <laughs> um, you know, when it comes to categories like gender queer, non-binary, gender fluid, pan-gender, you know, anything with the term gender in it, we have to make really clear it's dealing with gender, not sex. So if somebody says I'm non-binary, 99.99% of people who identify as non-binary are either male or female, but their gender might not be exclusively one or the other. And I hope, please track with me here according to my definitions. Okay, so gender identity is one's internal sense of who they are. So, so maybe their internal sense of who they are might be in between male and female, but they are still factually male or female. So to put it in the most basic terms I can, oftentimes if somebody says they're non-binary, that, that usually ends up meaning. They may not even say it like this, but if they describe what they mean by non-binary, what it, what it ends up ultimately saying is that they don't, resonate exclusively with masculine or feminine forms of behavior or even reflections on who they are. They don't feel particularly feminine. They don't feel particularly masculine. They're somewhere in between. Non-binary would be I'm neither one or the other. Um, If somebody says they're gender fluid, fluid just means it can can kind of go back and forth. So maybe on Monday, they feel more masculine. On Tuesday, they act more feminine. And it just kind of goes back and forth. Um, Pan gender is... Very, I mean, so a lot of these, there's so much overlap. It just depends on what they mean by it. But pan means all. So I'm pan gender, me, meaning I believe that there are many different genders and I might resonate with many of them or all of them. Um, and again, we're not dealing with the f- categories of biological sex because that's, that's where most people get super confused. Like, wait a minute, what does that even mean? How many genders are there? Well, there's two biological sexes, but if, if we define gender as your internal sense of who you are, assuming that definition, which is the most popular accepted definition of gender identity, then how many genders are there? I just, I was speaking at a church a couple of days ago and I asked that question. I heard a lot of people say, well, 7 billion, you know, like <laughs> how many different internal senses of self are there? Well, every human's unique and has a slightly different experience. And so sometimes these identity labels are they sound stronger than they really are. If I can put it in those terms, um, because one person, I mean, I don't know, Christy, you can maybe resonate with this. I know I could resonate with this. Like, I don't feel if you take the stereotype of masculinity, I'm like, well, there's several things I, I would resonate with and other things where I'm like, actually, 
no, like I will swerve to dodge like a squirrel running across the road. Like I actually, and sometimes whenever I hit that squirrel, I actually like my heart aches. Most people would say that's a more feminine characteristic. So if somebody else has that kind of wrestling with these two stereotypes, then they might say, well, that means I'm kind of non-binary or I'm, you know, I'm, I'm not fully masculine or, or feminine. So I, I'll try to keep this shorter, but some of these categories have so many assumptions that need to be understood so that we can fully understand what the, they mean. So we don't just kind of freak out at the, cause I hear people freak out all the time, you know, uh, how many genders are there, you know, and Facebook gives you like 74 options and people are like, ah, oh, what's going on? You know, this is crazy. And it's like, well, let's, let's at least try to understand what people are meaning by these terms. And then we can kind of interact with, you know, people who are wrestling with some, sometimes some really serious issues in their life, you know? And I think that's um, important to remember, too, that just understanding doesn't mean that you're accepting that as truth, um, like from a biblical right. perspective. You know, you're, you're seeking understanding. People don't care what you have to say until they know that you care. And mm, yeah, yeah. And so whenever someone knows that you care, then they'll be more inclined to hear what you have to say. But part of caring is understanding. That's right how we, we learn from each other. A lot of Christians struggle in that department where they go, they automatically put that wall up and they say, well, I don't have to, to cater to all these terms and all these gender identities. And so I, I think that's why that's so important that we go through this and we understand how can we relate to this population um, who is struggling and hurting and wanting to be seen and heard um, so that maybe we can provide that, that healing that Jesus offers in their mm-hmm. lives. So I yeah, re- I just want to reiterate, it's such a brilliant line that, you know, just seeking to understand somebody's terminology, their perspective doesn't mean you agree with it. Um, but a relationship with this person is nearly impossible. If you just say, I'm going to refuse to try to understand what you're saying, or I'm going to jump really quickly and just mock it or say, no, you know, if, if something like if somebody says, well, I identify as non-binary and you just jump in and like, what do you mean by that? Well, that doesn't know you're male, you're female or whatever. And it's like, you may be speaking truth, but you're not embodying love and no one's going to care about your truth until they feel your grace and compassion and love. You know, and we see this in the Bible all the time. I mean, the classic example is Paul on Mars Hill, you know, he's in Athens, you know, wandering around, there's idols everywhere. There's all these philosophers spouting off all kinds of ideas that clash with the biblical worldview. And instead of saying, look at all you stinking idolaters, you know, you're worshiping this where, you know, he says, you know, it looks like you guys are kind of religious. (laughs) In fact, I've even read, read some of your poets and here's what they say. Let let me, let, let's dive into, you know, uh, what, what your poets are even talking about here. And he kind of meets them where they're at so that he can speak uh, to them about the the true God of all creation. And, And we need to do the same. We need to understand where people are coming from so that we can enter into a real relationship so that we can communicate a, a grace-filled, truth-filled Christian worldview to people, especially people who have been oftentimes shamed and shunned and mocked by the church. Um, so as Christians, we just, we, we can't, we can't repeat <laughs> some of the mistakes we've done in the past and how we've gone about this conversation. Sure. It's finding that connection. I, I love that. And, and there's a particular story in your book, Embodied, um, that just hit the shelves, by the way, for those listening, you can get that now. But between Kat and Lori and, and Lori yeah. married with three kids, same sex attraction. She deals with that. And Kat is dealing with, she's a trans 
female coming to church and mm-hmm. Lori seeks Kat out and just says, hey, why don't you come hang out with us? And they start this where she's having dinner with their family and it begins this relationship um, towards Jesus where they wrestle with these questions together and they talk about the mm-hmm. Bible together. And, and before you know it, Kat is receiving a whole lot of healing in her life. Um, and that to me just is such a perfect example of what you're talking about, finding that connection, coming alongside. It doesn't mean that you have to claim to have all the answers. It just says, hey, we'll walk through this and wrestle with this with you um, because we care that much. We're not afraid of it. Yeah. Um, we we want to be there for you and, and just what you're saying, meet you where you're at. Yeah, yeah. so good. Yeah, she even asked so early on in that relationship, Kat asked Lori, so what does God think of my my gender, you know, and Lori said, I'm not actually sure, uh, but I want, I'll wrestle with this question with you. And I think some people might've been tempted to jump in and try to give a black and white answer to that question. But I asked Kat later, I said, what if Lori did that? What if she says, well, well, you're obviously female. So God thinks you're female and that's it. Like get over it. You know, Kat said, if, if Lori had done that, that as a fresh in the process of like seeking, like genuinely seeking and God was pulling her heart and she's having this kind of like conversion, this rolling conversion experience, if you will. Um, she said, if Lori had given me this black, black and white answer, she would have just, she would have ditched her like gone. Like I, I don't need black and white answers. I want somebody to love me enough to wrestle with me and truly hear me out. And the humility to say, you know what? I, I don't want to just jump in and assume that I know everything about your experience. These are tough issues, you know? So yeah, it was her humility and even going about the theological conversation that led to Kat's conversion. And and now Kat's one of the most solid zealous, passionate gospel preaching people I've ever met really preaches the gospel way more than I do red hot worshiper for Jesus. All be well, all because of Jesus, but I mean, Jesus's love mediated through Lori who really took a nuanced, um, very relationally based approach and did a whole lot of listening and and still does. That's powerful. One thing I I appreciated too, that you said was uh, the term transgenderism trans men, trans women, most of them are not crazy about that term. And tell me why that is. When you hear the term transgenderism, what, what's, what, what is the problem with that term? So yeah, trans, transgenderism, it's one of those terms I, you know, I used to use, I know a lot of people that use it. Most trans people I know don't like the term transgenderism. Most, most people use it without offense, without any intentional offense behind it. But it, it does, it just seems nameless, faceless, almost sounds like a disease. Like, oh man, I came down with a bad case of transgenderism, but I took some penicillin and, you know, now it's, it's going away, you know, just, it kind of has picked up that scent of being kind of a disease, you know? Um, so yeah. So let me just say this too, you know, the language, language can be tricky and I am not an advocate for always using terms that people want to use. Uh, for instance, I don't like the term and I don't use the term sex assigned at birth. You know, this is very popular in the medical community and in, in pop culture, people say, oh, I was assigned male at birth. I'm like, no, you were actually male at birth. The doctor did not determine that for you. God determined that. So, so I, yeah, I, I, I'm not one to say like, use whatever term people want you to use at all costs. But if there's a term that is unnecessarily offensive and there are alternatives, then let's use the alternatives. You know, language can either build walls, relational walls or relational bridges. And as the Christian, I want to build relational bridges. I don't want to cave into somebody else's ideology if it's completely off. I want to have bridges that relate to people. So the book, I talk about transgender identity, uh, the transgender conversation, 
or transgender people. I, I just like if there's a more specific term in mind, I would I would choose that over a broad brush kind of overarching term. Even a term like homosexuality is so broad. You know, um, are we talking about same sex attraction? Are we talking about same sex marriage? Are we talking about legal stuff? Are we talking about same sex sexual relationships? You know, I, I want to if I mean same sex sexual relationships, and I want to use that phrase, not some broad brush umbrella term. I also don't want to give off that idea that we bounce around and we're always walking on tiptoes. I think it, it kind of comes down to this moment yeah. of total honesty and humility, right? Just asking the other person, hey, mm-hmm. what do you prefer? You know, and this is where I'm at right now. I'm struggling to say this and maybe we can work through this together and help me understand where you're coming from. Kind of like Having these honest conversations and understanding conversations, again, it doesn't mean you're compromising your beliefs at all. Understanding does not mean acceptance. And I feel like I can't hammer that home enough. But mm-hmm. I, I want to ask you about stereotypes, uh, what it means to be a yeah. man or a woman in our culture. And do you think that has influenced transgender this gender identity crisis that we we see yeah yeah um stereotypes are a a really important part of this conversation um it's not everything some people want to reduce the whole trans conversation to just nothing but stereotypes but no i think it plays a a lot Large role. So, you know, you have, like we said before, you have males and you have females and a small percentage might have an intersex condition. They might have a blend of, of both aspects of their biological sex. But then you have this um, kind of hard to pin on category of stereotypes, you know, masculinity and femininity. I think most of our assumptions about masculinity and femininity come from culture, not the Bible. If you just want to make a, a biological observation of males and females on a general level, yes, most males will probably gravitate towards more ma- stereotypically masculine interests. Um, and I think, you know, I'm not a scientist, but I've done enough research on, you know, the, the various levels of testosterone and f- estrogen fluctuating in the human body that does have an effect on human interests and behavior. So m- the majority of males will act in stereotypically masculine ways, but some don't. And that doesn't mean you're not a man or a male. And moreover, as Christians, these masculine stereotypes are never morally mandated in the Bible especially younger people who are wrestling with their gender identity. Oftentimes I think they're being culturally confused because uh, for some people, again, please, I'm not saying for everybody, but for some people, they might just be a non-feminine female or a non-masculine male. And I think our society is creating these confusing categories of like, Oh, if you don't match up to this narrow box of whatever, then maybe you're non-binary or gender fluid or pangender or, or trans, or there's all these other alternative categories that we, that society has placed on people um, that don't match up to these natural, these, these narrow, uh, narrow stereotypes. And I think this is where Christianity has a golden opportunity to push back and have a more expansive view of what it means to be a man and a woman. You know, I, I think that is such an interesting angle too, because you think about how often the LGBTQ community does not want to be put in a box, Right. Yeah, they use the box of stereotype to determine what they want to be kind of like the you brought this up in your book, the Caitlyn Jenner situation where Mm -hmm. Bruce Jenner's on um, the cover of Vanity Fair. And there's a quote in here by by a trans woman. She she was troubled by this picture 
Yeah. The trans woman is Miranda Yardley. I just had her on my podcast, actually fascinating conversation. She's a older, uh, she would say transsexual who's very critical of, uh, what she sees as a trans kind of ideology that's simply resurrecting these old stereotypes. And, and the, the people who are most up, kind of upset at how Caitlyn Jenner was publicized is that, you know, and a lot of people are familiar with that picture of Caitlyn on, on the cover of Vanity Fair, where she's dressed in a very sensual, erotic kind of presentation. And I think this is where a lot of feminists, like non-Christian, non-religious, non-conservative feminists were like, wait a minute, we have spent the last 100 years <laughs> showing people that you don't need to be stuffed in some little tight dress with, you know, high heels and um, we don't need to fit the sort of male gaze, you know, of what it means to be a woman. And here you have this, and they would say, okay, there's this male who has lived a privileged life as a male all these years. And then all of a sudden he now takes on this female persona, but not just a female persona, but like a, and they would say again, like a patriarchal old oppressive view of what it means to be a female. You don't need to be this sensual erotic, like turning men's heads, you know, woman to be a true woman. So there's, there's some ideologies underlying the trans conversation that could be resurrecting older stereotypes of what it means to be a true man and a true woman. And that, that can be problematic. And I, I do want to say, I'm, I'm not, I don't want to reduce it all to stereotypes. There are people who have this debilitating psychological condition that just seems to come from within, from the time they were three years old. I've got friends from the time they were three years old had just crippling anxiety over the biological sex. So they, they always remind me, like, I'm not just trying to chase some stereotype. I've got this condition that has led me to commit attempt suicide on several occasions. I don't know what to do with. So, but I, but I think even they would say that like stereo, these stereotypes only exacerbate that. Like my female friends who wrestle with gender dysphoria, they hate going to women's retreats. A women's Bible study gives them loads of anxiety. You know, it's like, oh my gosh, there's just going to be these categories of femininity that are just going to hover in the air. And I just, it just oppresses me, you know, so. And I can relate to that. I mean, I, I was, I was a lot like Kat in your book um, where, I mean, literally mm -hmm. I was four years old and all I wanted um, for Christmas was a San Diego Chargers football uniform. and and a new football. <laughs> and I would go and play football yeah. down the street. And I played football till I was in ninth grade, you know, with the boys. Mm -hmm. And so, and I didn't fit into that stereotypical female. And I, I knew it was different. I knew I just love sports. That's all I wanted to do. And that's all I did most of my days. And I can remember because of that feeling different because mm -hmm. I wasn't the typical girl who wanted to go spend all day shopping, get her makeup done, worry about hair. Mm -hmm. I'm still not that girl. And, and there was this breakthrough moment as I was seeking restoration and healing just truly with God. And I had someone else taking me through some just healing steps. It was really related to a recovery program and addiction, but mm. through that, it was me working through patterns in my life and, and combating truth with this deception. Basically I was a girl who loved these masculine things. That didn't mm -hmm. mean I had to take on another identity other than being a female um, I could still be a female and love these masculine things. And that was okay. And that's mm, how God created yeah. me. So it's really, I think, done harm to our society, just like that with the, the Bruce Jenner on the cover of Vanity Fair. That's man's idea of what a woman is 
Um, it's objectifying the lingerie, the, the sensual type, mm-hmm. that kind of situation for sure makes girls like me who don't fit that stereotypical look feel like that's what it means to be a woman. And that's just not the truth. And, and that leads me to my next question about the biblical viewpoint of stereotype, what God really tells men and women on how we should be. Can you talk about that for a minute? Yeah, sure. Um, the beautiful thing about the Bible is the Bible upholds and celebrates sex difference between male and female. Like the Bible is very much against blurring these two categories of biological sex. But the Bible rarely, if ever, and there's some debate about the if ever, um, gives women certain commands that men are not to follow or vice versa. Clearly, we have different biological functions that are you know, obviously related to reproduction. And there might be, and there's debates about this, so I don't want to divide the audience, but like, you know, maybe there's different roles in the church or maybe in the home or in a marriage. I'm going to say, you know, maybe there's some things there. Um, but on the whole, we can all agree that the overwhelming majority of commands to be godly, you know, e- even certain male or female specific passages like Titus 2, you know, Paul says, older women teach the young women too, and he gives 10 commands. Well, at least eight of those commands are given to men elsewhere in scripture to be sober-minded, to not be addicted to wine, to be kind and gentle-hearted and all these things. It's like, oh, all these feminine traits is gentleness, a feminine trait. No, it's men are commanded to be gentle as well. I just, I was reading in Ephesians four this morning where in all humility and gentleness, we're supposed to pursue the unity of the spirit in Christ. And so here's the way I would frame it is the Bible upholds and celebrates male and female difference. And yet it gives us a very expansive, like liberating view on how to live that out. You know, some women stay at home and make babies, other women go out and win wars in the book of Judges. You know, some men get married and have lots of kids and, you know, are, are big mighty warriors. And other ones are like David who does that, you know, but he also cries a lot, and writes poetry, weeping right and left, you know, playing his harp. And, you know, people sometimes say the Bible is, you know, backwoods and it's old fashioned and patriarchal and all this. The Bible actually is, is so beautiful and how it upholds the dignity and equality of males and men and women, um, but then allows us a lot of freedom and what it means to live that out. It, it does not, it does not at all advocate for these, these narrow stereotypes of masculinity and femininity. Um, you can be a more feminine man, as long as you're a godly man, then you're a godly man. And same with, same with women. So, yeah. And, and when we look at the, the attributes of God, just, you know, the loving, the kindness, the nurturing, aspects. Mm. I mean, he's calling us to be that. And, and so often we do like men, they will shy away from those attributes when really that's what we're called to be Mm Christ-like and, you know, and it's okay to display those. I wanted to ask you, cause I know we're on a limited time frame here. So um, before I let you go, I I did want to ask you just about um, the medical interventions today, they're starting early, even in the ages six, seven, eight years old, most predominantly in the teens. What What are your thoughts on what's going on with that? To be honest, I'm terribly disturbed over it. So, so there, there's three different broad categories of transition. There's social, hormonal, and surgical. 
And we got to make sure we don't blur those together. Cause I've heard people say, well, man, they're transitioning kids as young as six years old. It's like, well, then no, that like, well, socially they might hormonally, that doesn't really start. There's a thing called puberty blockers where they'll give to prepubescent kids or kids just starting the beginning stages of uh, puberty. And what these blockers do is they prevent the child from going through puberty. Um, they delay it. And the logic is, you know, give them time to kind of figure out who they are. And there's been lawsuits over this now. And a lot of people are starting to wake up to this. And when I say a lot of people, I'm talking like non-Christian, non, like very liberal <laughs> psychologists who aren't opposed to transitioning an adult, but they would say, we're, we're, ex- we're literally experimenting on kids. Like this is Orwellian. If people have read George Orwell's 1984. Um, and there's been a, a major lawsuit in the UK where the, um, a girl who was given hormones at the age of 15, like really quickly walked in says she's trans. And like, after just not much counseling, like, okay, let's get you on hormones. And they cut off her breast, double mastectomy, you know? And then a few years later, she's like, I was a tomboy was dealing with mental kind of issues and you guys chopped off my breasts and now I'm living with the consequences. She sued college of medical practitioners or whatever. And, and won. They, they were like, yeah, she, she, a 15 year old girl doesn't have the ability to make some kind of informed consent on some, something as lifelong and irreversible as these surgeries. So this has become a global debate and I'm glad it's becoming a debate and isn't just being brushed under the, or shoved under the carpet. Uh, the debate is, you know, um, if you have a young teenager who says they're trans, wants to transition, is it ethically legitimate to do that? to transition them or should, should they wait until they are an adult um, to make that decision? And, and I, I'm not even talking about the, from a Christian standpoint, the ethics of whether anybody should ever transition. I'm just talking just from a societal perspective, like should teenagers be allowed to do this? But I've, I've heard many, I mean, just disturbing stories of young teenagers very easily getting access to cross-sex hormone therapy, like girls as young as 14, 15, 16, getting easy access to testosterone. Um, and in the state of Oregon, the, the age of consent is 15. So like a 15-year-old without parental consent can go in and get doses of testosterone and get a double mastectomy at 15. And in some states, they're trying to just keep that age going down, 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 because there's a view that says... Well, if a kid says they're trans and they're trans, they know who they are. This is who they are. And if you say no, then you're a toxic, you're unhelpful, and you're going to cause them to commit suicide. And so they use kind of suicidality as a a weapon sometimes to say either they need to transition or they're going to kill themselves. So do you want to, you know, parents are told, do you want an alive daughter or a dead son? You know, is kind of how it's framed, which again, is just psychologically irresponsible to, to try to give some kind of false dichotomy like this so that you are pressured into giving your 15 year old testosterone, which has an irreversible effect. If a kid's, if a female's on testosterone for a year, year and a half, two years, most likely there'll be life infertile the rest of their life, uh, higher risk of cancer, of heart disease, of blood clots, of all kinds of stuff. And, and we see that the results are they're typically wrestling with the same stuff after testosterone than they were before, you know? And so again, and again, I'll just say it one more time. I'm not even, I'm even talking about whether it's biblical or not. I'm just saying on a scientific, psychological, societal level, it's, it's very disturbing. Um, and it's disturbing that there's still a lot of it quickly transitioning kids is going on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And there, there's a high detransition rate as mm-hmm. well. I mean, um, a lot of regret from moving into that. And what's so crazy to me is that 
these same scientists and researchers will say that a teenager's brain, like our brains don't stop developing until we're 23 or 24 years old. And especially the, the frontal cortex, which is the place where you worry about consequences and you take a look at mm-hmm. that's not even developed yet. So that we do know that scientifically that that part of your brain that doesn't even think about consequences is being able to make decisions that have permanent consequences. That that's what's so crazy to me. Yeah. And, yeah, no, absolutely. And, and for an example, uh, Ken Zucker, uh, was it's still he's still alive? Um, it's getting older, but the, the world-renowned expert in gender dysphoria among children. I mean, this guy has seen thousands of patients, has spent thirty years researching this, and he had a clinic in in Toronto. And and he, um, again, this guy's like not conservative by any stretch of the imagination. He's not religious. Not you know, he took approach called a, a uh, biopsychosocial approach to gender dysphoria, meaning if somebody comes in and they're suffering from gender dysphoria, so you have a male who doesn't feel like they're male, he took an approach saying, you know what, let's explore, let's explore their mental health, let's explore back background trauma, like have they been through something? Is there something going on? And what else is going on inside of them that may need to be addressed? And if they still want to transition that we want them to live in the social role of that. Like if, if you're a male, a female role to just kind of explore it, test it out. Like he kind of took a, you know, the last step should be irreversible medical intervention, which you hear all that. And you're like, um, sounds like basic psychology. Like that sounds like a pretty good approach, right? Well, he got blasted and fired on the grounds that he was performing conversion therapy fired. Here's a liberal psychologist, a world-renowned expert, and now he's being pegged as like he practices conversion therapy. And he's like, isn't the essence of conversion therapy actually converting somebody's biological sex? <laughs> like, what do you mean conversion therapy? I'm exploring. And when he does explore all the other mental health issues that these kids are wrestling with, he would unearth all kinds of stuff that would seem to be connected to gender dysphoria. Um, not in every case, but in a lot of cases, wouldn't you rather... And this is where some people would say no, but wouldn't you rather have somebody work through some psychological issues and then find where the maybe link is to their dysphoria, have that be relieved and have them live in their biological sex without the psychological turmoil? Wouldn't that, that be the, the best possible scenario? And some people were like, no, if, if they have dysphoria, that means they're trans and their body needs to be changed to conform to their internal sense of who they are. And that's, that perspective is actually pervasive in the medical community, uh, which is, it's, it truly is shocking and disturbing, uh, honestly. Hmm. Let me ask you about parents. What can a parent do when his or her child comes and says, hey, mom, dad, I'm, I'm trans female, I'm trans male. Uh, I'm wanting to transition. I know there's a a term that you use, rapid onset gender dysphoria. And can you just touch on that for a minute? And and parents are seeing this a lot. So define what that is and how a parent can respond to the situation. Rapid onset gender dysphoria has to do with the massive increase, and it is massive, uh, of particularly biological females, teenagers, teenage females, who seemingly out of nowhere and in a group context 
come out as trans. When I say trans, that's a shorthand for transgender, non-binary, genderqueer, genderfluid, and, and many other gender identities. For instance, the United Kingdom has seen a, well, the, the gender clinic at the United Kingdom has seen a 5,000% increase in biological female teenagers coming to their clinic for help with their gender, like the wrestling with their gender on some level. Like that is unprecedented. And so this, this has become super popular. And, and what they're finding is a large percentage of this population has no prior history of gender dysphoria. But in the last 10 years, it is overwhelmingly females with no gender dysphoria in their childhood past. That seems They seem to come out as trans out of nowhere as a teenager in a group context. So it's like they come out as trans or parents like, where did this come from? Then they look and like three or four of their friends came out as trans that week at school. It raises the question, like what, is there some social role, some social contagion that is happening? Something in their social environment? What are they watching online? Talk, what are they learning at school? And, and what, what are their friends talking about? And, and they're finding that there's a lot of evidence for, not in every case, but in a lot of cases among teenage females with this kind of trajectory, uh, that they're often dealing with other mental health issues or often very lonely, isolated at school. Uh, they come out as trans in a group context. It typically elevates their social status. Where back in our day and age, I mean, we're probably similar age, you know, that, that would not be a way to gain social status. Well, in some contexts it is today. So even going back to the transition question, it's like, man, okay, if somebody fits that kind of trans profile, goodness, shouldn't we explore these other issues before we just fast track in this transition in which is what's often happening. Yeah. For parents, you know, um, it would be really helpful. Honestly, I've got a podcast where I just recently interviewed a few people who went through this kind of rapid onset stage. There's one by a girl named Helena Kirshner. In fact, you, you would, I would recommend Googling Helena Kirshner. She went through all this and she has a brilliant, wise perspective on how to help parents um, in, in the podcast that I did with her at the end. She says, well, first of all, if a kid does kind of fit this profile, they kind of come out as trans overnight or they come home with a new identity marker and you're like, what in the world? What else is going on in their life that's leading to them feeling the need to belong somewhere? You know, Don't judge them for their identity. Get to know their identity, get to know them, you know, uh, meet them where they're at, be a good, good listener. No, let them know that you are a safe place where they can come and wrestle with things out loud and not feel judged because especially parents, it's very, <laughs> I'm a parent, um, very easy for us to just kind of jump in and parent our kid, you know, and steer them right. But sometimes we need to be better counselors than parents among kids that are wrestling with this. And, and I would also say, lastly, we shouldn't explicitly or even implicitly or explicitly give our kids the impression that they need to fit some stereotype to be who they are. Uh, and this can sometimes happen, especially in environments where a boy isn't particularly masculine or a female isn't particularly feminine. Um, sometimes if the parents try to stuff them or steer them towards this narrow stereotype, it can actually have a, re uh, a reverse effect. I push them farther away from you and maybe even further into a trans identity. If they're like, well, if I don't, if I'm a girl and I don't fit this feminine stereotype, then all my friends and all my teachers say I might be trans. So that might be what I am. But then it's kind of sad, but the parent has almost unintentionally pushed them towards that because they've had this expectation of femininity or masculinity that their kid is not matching up to. So I would say loosen up on the stereotypes and that could very much work in your favor. One final question. And if you can, Give me in one or two sentences, what would you say to the body of Christ, how we can bridge this gap? Silence or 
ignorance is not an option. If you live in the United States or even a Western nation in 2021, and you want to have any kind of relevance, <laughs> um, we need to understand, get our arms and mind and heart around this conversation. Read some books, listen to some podcasts, <laughs> even better, meet some people and listen to their stories. But just trying to pretend like it doesn't exist or saying, well, I don't need to engage this. That's just not an option for us anymore. We have to engage it. I just want to add this. It starts with our own, within our own families, educating our children. Um, I have an eight-year-old. As he ventures into middle school, I, w- I need to start prepping him now for what these conversations can look like on his level. But I can't prep him if I'm not educated on it. But just how to navigate that when these situations pop up. It's that him being grounded in who he is in Christ. And as a parent, I, I feel a very strong responsibility, especially where our culture is today. I appreciate you so much, Preston. Thank you for hanging this hour with me. And uh, for those of you listening, if I really encourage you to check out Preston's book, his latest one, Embodied, and all the other ones that he has. You can go to PrestonSprinkle.com. Preston, is there anything else you want to add on how people can find you? I know you mentioned your podcast. Yeah, Theology, Theology in the Raw. I record two podcasts a week. Third of them are usually on sexuality and gender. Um, I also have a website, PrestonSprinkle.com. And also in terms of sexuality and gender, my ministry website, CenterForFaith.com would highly encourage people to go there. It's kind of a one-stop resource center for a Christian perspective on this conversation. Um, There's endless resources they can check out there, CenterForFaith.com. Awesome. Thank you so much. Um, And for those of you listening, if you have any questions about today's podcast, you can email me, Christy at TheBravePlace.org. Christy spelled C-H-R-I-S-T-Y at thebraveplace.org. I would love to hear from you and your thoughts on this podcast. And please go check out Preston's information wherever you can and equip yourself. Thank you for joining us. Have an awesome day and a brave day. Thanks for listening to The Brave Place, part of the KLRC Podcast Network. 